Hello and welcome to another episode of the Electrical Apparatus Show. I'm your host, David Miller, and I think we have a strong program for everyone today. So we have, coming on as a guest in just a few minutes, uh, Harry Moser of the Reshoring Initiative, which you can learn more about at reshorenow.org. The Reshoring Initiative, in its own words, is an organization with the stated mission of bringing good, well-paying manufacturing jobs back to the United States. So this is obviously a topic of tangential interest, but interest nonetheless to our field of service and repair. Uh, The reason being, quite simply, that um, not all, but often a significant portion of service and repair work on electrical, uh, electromechanical equipment, it's motors, drives, pumps, and on and on it goes, does come, or at least can come, from manufacturing plants, as I'm sure our readers and listeners know. So we've obviously covered this topic before to some degree. It's been a pet interest of mine in particular. Um, I think most notably, those who read the magazine can look back to the January 2020 cover story. Uh, That's January of this year, the reshoring revolution, in which Harry was also featured, among uh, among many others, of course, um, who were interviewed alongside him. And we we took a, a deep dive in that story into this phenomenon of, of, of reshoring from many anger, angles. We, we approached it from the angle of trade, automation, skills training, public policy, and so on. And that's because there simply are so many different ways into this topic, so many different angles to look at it from. And so I think that's a very interesting article for anyone interested in the topic. Uh, I might recommend flipping back to it um, if you want to read more about this, um, aside from what Harry and I are going to discuss in a few minutes uh, during our interview today. Also, I think it's worth noting, in March, our managing editor, Selena Cody, did a Plant Life column, I believe it was. Plant Life, which is um, sometimes written by her and sometimes written by me. Um, For those who don't know, I think our readers probably know, but for those who don't know, that's our Uh, monthly manufacturing column, which we run in addition to many of our more explicitly service and repair-oriented stories each month. Well, she talked to Harry as well about um, supply chain disruptions and the the changing supply chain outlook at the very beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak. And obviously, a lot has happened since then. And obviously, in March... um, you know, we were actually, I think, still in the office. We were writing that. We write for March and February. We were still in the office. We didn't know, um, Yeah, I think it was shortly after that, within a few weeks, that we all had to vacate the office and everyone had to vacate everywhere. We had no idea it would become so huge, but people were already talking about the supply chain implications. And so a lot has happened since then. Um, certainly the COVID-19 pandemic has... has um, presented itself to the public as a much more severe issue than maybe many initially thought it would be. And, of course, maybe some knew even that early on that, that there was trouble on the horizon. I, I think it's here and there. Some had different ideas than others. Maybe, maybe it's not worth going into that. But but uh, obviously a lot has happened since then. And so we have Harry on um, to continue that discussion in a manner of speaking, and and not really focusing solely on COVID, but really focusing on reshoring and focusing on the ways in which supply chain disruptions following in the wake of COVID has affected the push for reshoring. So I'm going to go over and uh, cut over to him in a moment. And when we come back from that interview, we'll unpack a little bit. We'll provide some extra information on the reshoring initiative for those who are interested. And that will also be available via link in the text description beneath this podcast. And so um, 
we'll talk a bit more about what we have coming up for you as well in the November business issue. I'll tease some of the upcoming print magazine content. Um, and with any luck, you know, barring postal service delays, which um, sometimes happen these days, will be to you um, the first week of the month. And so now I'm going to go over and cut over to our talk with Harry. First question for you, Harry. Open us up by telling our listeners in the broadest sense possible how it is that COVID-19 has affected the push for reshoring of U.S. manufacturing. In the broadest sense, uh, society is now increasingly aware that the U.S. is not self-sufficient in a broad range of products. Uh, The COVID crisis, day after day, hour after hour on television, people saw that we do not have gowns and masks and gloves and and found out that 90% of our uh, antibiotics, penicillin, things like that come from offshore, especially China. And we found that other countries in their own self-interest refused to ship us some of these things because they needed it for their own people. So, so society has understood, you know, people, consumers, but also companies, government, have understood that we are, that our lack of self-sufficiency is, is extreme and that something has to be done about it. I see. So what we see is a bit of a cattle prod effect. Um, certainly we, we see short-term damage and disruption, which is a negative but then on the other side of that, I imagine um, if the lessons of this upfront pain are heated, you know, greater long-term security could result. Um, it's a little bit like maybe, maybe, um, maybe the, similar to the, the 1970s oil crises in that it was a, a, an upfront catastrophe and it was devastating, but ultimately um, it led the U.S. to become... Uh, I guess you would say a more energy efficient, energy independent country in the decades to come. But to to narrow in a little bit, um, and I, I think you kind of already touched on this, are there any specific manufacturing subsectors that, in your view, have been more readily affected than others? The area that's most obvious to the average person, to the politician, is medical. It's all those things I talked about and, and many more. And there's various bills in, in the House and the Senate to mandate that we become self-sufficient on medical devices, pharmaceuticals, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sure that will happen. It's, it's so emotional. It's so obvious. But, but as in the articles that describe it, there's typically also a mention of, of other areas. We, we're no, we, we make almost no rare earth minerals, which are necessary for electronics, for military, for, for all kinds of things. We we're, we make only 90, we only make about 3% of the clothing and the footwear that we consume. We, we make yeah, a relatively small percentage of the machine tools. That, that's been my industry. There's just a, a broad range of these areas, electronic devices, uh, cell phones, oh, you know, many of the things that are critical for daily life. That we don't make anymore, or we make very few of. And so I'm sure that the pharmaceutical and medical products will be resolved. And I'm quite confident that the other areas will also be, but maybe not as completely. We'll, instead of 
going from instead of getting to 70, 80% self-sufficiency in medical, maybe we'll get to uh, 50% self-sufficiency in, in some of the other areas. And that's a hell of a lot better than zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so what I kind of get from this too is that um, this, this kind of highlights the fact that while U.S. manufacturing is an economic concern, um, now what we see is it's it's become broader than that. Maybe you might even say more political because over and above just jobs and trade and so on, um, now what we see is it's becoming more abundantly clear to the general public that it's also about national security and public health and issues that are not merely economic. And I guess you could argue those issues have an economic component, as everything does, but I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is it seems like um, for those who are not as readily prone to what we might call the, the economic way of thinking, the highlighting of these other concerns kind of has an unintended benefit in pointing out the, the importance of manufacturing um, outside of just those typical you know trade, jobs, concerns. Would you say that's kind of a, a good assessment here? Yeah, I, I think it's true. But I, when I give a presentation, I refer to it as people a year ago during the trade wars started to have an intellectual understanding of the trade deficit, and now they have an emotional understanding. And for most people, emotion outweighs intellect. And uh, and so people people are demanding that something be done, and companies are responding. I see. And and so moving on from that. Um, tell me too, do you feel that these events are truly going to be a catalyst for more reshoring of domestic manufacturing, that is bringing it back to the U.S., or do you think it's equally, equally likely, um, as, as some have at times suggested, that manufacturers will merely um, diversify their supply chains on the whole, this whole China plus one thing, moving into Vietnam or whatever it is, some other country um, other than just coming back home? there are some products where you can justify dual sourcing and in that case it would make sense to have one in the U.S. and one somewhere else making the exact same thing same product but most products do not allow that the, the economics of production are such that you're, you're much better off to have one source and if you have one source if you have all your sources in the U.S. ideally all your sources in the town where your assembly plant is. So you're getting all the products, all the components in, but like Toyota does with a big factory and all the suppliers nestled right around them. Then, then there's one, if you say, let's say there's risks happening everywhere. There's, there's asteroids and there's uh, uh, typhoons and there's uh, tsunamis and they're happening in various places around the world. Well, the, the odds are that very small that will happen in your town and if it does well then it wipes out your supply chain but it wipes out your assembly plan too so it doesn't matter that you can't get the get the products so if there's if you have a choice of a hundred uh, supply chains scattered across the country or across the world rather each one with a you know a probability of whatever of something going wrong and you reduce that down to having all of them right at one location the risk of something going wrong has been cut by almost a factor of 100. And, and so first choice for most people should, should be, I'm not saying will be, should be to, to move everything close to the assembly plant, close to the market, 
second, or inside the country, or inside the continent. The second choice would be to uh, have one here and another one somewhere else, like China, India, Mexico, you know, somewhere, somewhere further away. I see. And, and a, another element of this, too, I think probably is the the truly global nature of the disruption caused by COVID-19, um, and which maybe sets its effects apart from other large-scale upheavals like um, the, the 2015 Tianjin port explosion, or Tianjin port explosion, I think it's pronounced. And uh, for our listeners' sake, th- this was just an incident at a Chinese port which disrupted trade several years back. But um, is it the case that the, the fact that this is not limited to a single region, this issue, um, that that might make it more likely that rather than merely diversifying, you know, there's nowhere to run. You have to come back, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think there's a logic there. If if you're going to have a, a universal, you know, worldwide event like this, then you could say there's nowhere to hide, and specifically... You're at least nowhere to hide outside the country because if you if you're trying to get product out of these other countries and they're all down and they all need the product whether it's masks or it's generators or it's something you're not going to get them. Whereas if the supply is inside the country and the U.S. is keeping the stuff for its internal market, then you have a much better chance of getting the the products and the material you need. So so I, I'd say the the fact that we've experienced a, a global crisis makes makes the local sourcing an even more obvious choice. I see. And and at the same time, though, for those who are moving to reshore um, to avoid these future uncertainties, these supply chain uncertainties, what can they do to ensure that they remain competitive given what might be potentially higher costs that come along um, with domestic production? Well, first, it's, it's almost inevitable that the nominal manufacturing cost, the, the labor burden material, will be higher here than from China or India or Mexico, places where wages are 20% or 10% of ours. So that, that's almost inevitable. Uh, so the question then is, what, what can you do about it? And the first thing to, for us is always uh, looking at the total cost instead of just the uh, manufacturing cost. And so manufacturing cost, labor burden, uh, material, uh, total cost adds to that the logistics and risks involved, the, the duty and the freight and the carrying cost of inventory, the travel cost, the, the, the benefit of having just-in-time delivery, the advantage of having engineering and manufacturing able to, to get together and talk in the same language in the same time zone, 27 other factors like that. And and those amount to 15 to 25% of the total cost. And, when the company, and the companies typically ignore that. They look only at the FOB price. And, and therefore, they're in 20 or 30% of the cases making the wrong decision. They're, they're buying offshore instead of domestically. So, so we uh, we say that um, that some things should not come back. Some things that costs are just too high here. No matter how well you automate, no matter what you do, you can't get it back. But but the the right answer is to look at the 
FOB price, the current FOB price here versus there, three on board FOB, and the and then add in these what we call the hidden costs, all these things I, I just mentioned to get to the total cost. So it might turn out that, for example, the let's say the U.S. cost, the total cost, let's say the U.S. price is ten. Uh, Chinese price is eight, pretty easy decision to get it from China. But when you, when you look at total cost, you add in the duty and freight and so on, maybe it's ten and nine and a half. And, and then the challenge is to bring in automation, uh, to do lean, uh, process flow, uh, organizing the plant better, uh, modern practices, good training, all these things. And you know, a combination of lean and uh, automation and skills training to get that 10 down to 9 so, so that the U.S. now is clearly the, the superior choice. And, and sometimes you can do that and, and, and sometimes you can't. And if you can't, then it should stay where it is or go to another low labor cost country. Our, our general solution to that is uh, that, that near-shoring which is bringing the work back to somewhere close is, is often a good choice. We, I'd much rather have the work come to the U.S., but if it's so labor-intensive that you can't not get it here and you can't automate it enough to get it here, if it, if it winds up in Mexico and then shift in, made in Mexico, shift here, product coming out of Mexico is about 40, 40% U.S. content. Product coming out of China is 5% U.S. content. So by getting it to Mexico instead of China or India, you pick up a third of a loan for the U.S. And I'd rather have a third than, than not. I see. So, so there's a few different things here. Um, what, you, what you're just saying is that nearshoring is better than offshoring entirely. But then the, the other thing, that the bulk of what you're saying is there's really two sides of this coin. The first is that when you look at the hidden cost, the total cost of ownership and so on and so forth, it's actually not as advantageous to, to, offshore, to, to offshore as some might think. Um, and so it may already be more cost competitive to, to, to be here than some might think. But then on the other side of that, you hint at some means of further cutting high costs here. And, and to, to get at that, you talk about automation. So, so get into me in a little bit more detail the role that automation plays in this in um, you know, potentially cutting labor costs, um, but also interestingly, um, in an environment where social distancing is mandated, um, potentially requiring plants to operate um, more easily in these sorts of limited circumstances. Okay. So, uh, automation primarily reduces direct labor costs. It, it can cause higher burden because you have depreciation on that robot or that machine tool or whatever that you bought. And, and it's, it's not easy because typically the U.S. Manuf total manufacturing cost is 20, 30% too high relative to most other countries. And to get 20 or 30% out of labor burden and material, well, automating tends to only, it tends to primarily attack labor might raise burden probably doesn't change material very much so you've got to get 60% out of labor to get 20% maybe out of manufacturing costs 
So it's not easy. Right? But but the, the challenge is that the other countries are doing it much more aggressively than we are. Uh, Korea has three times as many robots per thousand manufacturing workers as we do. China invests three times as much each year in CNC machine tools. In Germany, the average CNC machine tool is two or three years younger than ours, therefore more automated, more modern, faster. So these guys are running as hard as they can, investing, 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 and we're not doing enough. The U.S. productivity, manufacturing productivity, on average, the last 12 years has only increased 0.4% per year. Whereas in China, it's increased about 6% per year. So we have to get our game together and start getting our automation, our productivity rising at 3 4% a year if we're going to stay in the game. If not, the other guy's costs are going to drop and ours will not, and we'll lose even more work instead of reshoring. I see. So this isn't even so much about automating to be able to beat out the competition. This is automating just to keep pace with the competition is what I gather. I'd say the first 2 3%, 4%, like in China, the wages are still going up rapidly, and that eat, that's eaten up and more than eaten up their, their automation gains. But now that things are slowing every, everywhere, I suspect their wages aren't going up anymore. And therefore, if they still have the automation gains, then they're going to be cutting their costs and price, and, and we're going to lose again. So, so I'd say we have to get two or three percent productivity gains every year to stay even, and four or five, six percent if we want to uh, win. <laughs> <laughs> I see. And, and now, it's sort of like Alice in, Alice in Wonderland. Remember. You have to run as hard as you can just to stay in place. Just to stay in one place. That's right. No, that that is a, an excellent way to put it. Yeah, uh, I've often quoted that line myself. It's one of the troubling things about many factors of life, I find. But, but here, here's a here's a sort of challenging question for you to, to change gears a little bit. Um, now, if I'm not mistaken, you, you've been in favor of. Uh, an assortment of policy measures to help accelerate reshoring. Um, some of them, I think, are, are fairly run-of-the-mill. Um, they're almost more like anti-policies than policies. So, so for instance, I think you, you favored the 2017 corporate tax cuts, right? And, um, well, well, am I incorrect there? Go go ahead. When we were at, we were at 28%, I think Japan maybe was also at about 28 and most everybody else was 20, 21 so when a company said, where should I put my factory, even where should I put my corporate headquarters? Remember, a bunch of companies moved their corporate headquarters to Ireland because the tax rate was 4% or 5%. Yeah. And when they do that, we're at 28, they're at 5. Their profit, their after-tax profit goes up by about a third just for putting their headquarters over in Ireland. And that, and for us to, you know, to let that happen, to be, be in a condition where that happens, we're just asking companies to leave, and even those who don't leave, to build their factories in some other country where the tax on the profit at the factory uh, will, tax rate will be lower and the ROI higher. So, uh, if, if you had, it, if, if I could, if I were the czar and could and could do what was economically wisest, I would take the corporate tax rate to zero, and I would raise the 
income tax rate on higher income individuals, let's say $100,000 mm-hmm. up, the people who actually benefit from corporate profits, I would raise their all their income tax rates enough to uh, recapture what the corporations picked up by having zero income tax. And, and why is that logical? Because the companies can vote with their feet. If they don't like the, the conditions here, they'll put the factory somewhere else. Whereas it's very unlikely for American citizens to leave America and go live somewhere else. I mean, a few will do it, but it, it almost never happens. So you're better off to better off to take the money where it will have the least negative impact on the economy. So I'd say get rid of the corporate income tax, raise, raise corporate tax, the individual tax rates and the uh, capital gains tax rates on more affluent people, including myself. I'd be I'd be happy to do that to make it more uh, competitive for our companies. And and the result of that will be many more jobs here. The U- Given that we're the biggest market and so much of what we now consume comes in from uh, offshore, companies would flood into the U.S. to build factories and, and meet the needs of that market. I see. And I think that's a good division to make. The, the nuance of that is that in supporting lowering the corporate tax rate, this is unrelated from your stance on income tax rates. And and that is interesting. But uh, and, and you also, I think... In addition to this, though, you, you what I was going to get at is is you you um, you know I think for some people um, who are of a free more free market bent, it's easier to swallow the tax cuts than some other measures such as um, trade protectionism or tariffs. Um, I think you've floated a value added tax and market access charges and so on and so forth. Um, so so there's some policies you support which are. Um, probably more palatable to the mainstream, and then others are, I don't want to say more controversial because I don't personally think they're controversial, um, but might seem a little more outside the norm um, to some people. And so I, I, I guess my question for you, well, oh, go ahead if you if you want to cut in. Uh, a couple of years ago, the economists would almost all say, we should not have any industrial policy, we should not change the the tilt of the playing field, the terms of trade, whatever the market decides, let it be, and that's okay. But but at the result of a, when I run into it, like have a debate with one of those economists, I say, how's it doing for you? Our, our manufacturing <laughs> has declined by about five million jobs from from where it would be with a balanced to trade, and and that is almost all due to the dollar being too high. It's all to say 20, 30% too high, which is due to our having the reserve currency. And so it used to be that, that the currency would adjust based on the flow of goods. If you have a big trade surplus, your currency goes up. If you have a big trade deficit, your currency comes down. Eventually things balance out. It doesn't happen for us anymore because we're the reserve currency, which means our currency always stays high. And so it's a great place to be a bank and not a good place to be a factory. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if I had the choice, so, so I'd say we don't ha- have a free market both for manufacturing from that viewpoint and also from the viewpoint that other countries don't operate in a free market fashion. The, the, the Japanese always keep their currency down. The Chinese did it for years. Uh, Germany, very tough competitor, stays part of the euro. 
because that, if, the, if they had the D mark again, their costs would be up by 20 or 30 percent, but they're pulled down by Greece and Italy and so on. So, so it's, it's essential that the U.S. has an industrial policy, and the policy should be to balance the trade deficit. If we get rid of the deficit, balance trade, and, and the ways to do that that we recommend, first thing is always skilled workforce. But one reason the Germans are successful despite their high wages is their apprentice programs. And, and they're good engineers. And, and we, don't, we send all, a lot of kids to university, not enough of them study engineering. We send so few kids into the apprentice programs, toolmaker, welder, precision machinist, that kind of thing. And like in Switzerland, 60% of the kids go into apprenticeships. Here, 2% or 3% too. So first thing, fix the skilled workforce system. Second would be get the dollar down 20 or 30% over over a five-year, 10-year period. Uh, I would have a value-added tax. And you can offset it by eliminating other taxes so the burden isn't disproportionate on any groups. Uh, I would uh, have you know, added incentives for automation, other things like that that would make us make us competitive. So there's a range of things like that that, that should be done. Uh, you know, I'm looking forward to see whether uh, you know, President Trump or, uh, <laughs> or President Biden uh, implement some of those things. Uh, I see. And so what, what I kind of gather your thrust is, is that this lack of industrial policy, which is meant to ensure that there isn't excessive government intervention in the economy, in effect is kind of self-defeating. And that if you were to engage um, in a more focused and targeted industrial policy, you would actually heighten the ability for there to be what we call free markets within America. Is that is that kind of a good way to put yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. In general, I don't, I don't want to pick winners. I don't want to say we should, and there's some things we probably should make. 5G, we should make artificial intelligence things. We should make semiconductors. Some things are so obvious. We should make our military products. We should make for anything that, that you need for everyday life, we should probably make at least half of what we consume. So if we're cut off, we, we're not destitute, like, like penicillin and so on. Uh, but I... Uh, that's, that's basically what I think, yeah. Yeah, it's it, we don't want to pick winners and losers, but if we don't do something, the rest of the world may pick winners and losers for us. It's sort of like... We'll pick winners and we'll, and we'll, be, and we'll be the loser as we've been the loser. So what I want to do <laughs> is not so much pick individual industries to succeed, but to level the playing field, get the U.S. manufacturing cost at a level that's competitive with Germany and and. China, at least at least competitive at total cost of ownership, if not at price, and then and then let the market pick which which industries will actually succeed here. But 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 by getting it to a condition where eighty or ninety percent of products could be made here profitably in comparison to imports, and then and then let the market decide exactly which companies which products will be made here. I think I, I see, and I, I think. It's probably no secret that I am I am inclined to agree with you in many regards, and so um, I, I don't try to hide that from anyone. So I do have another question, kind of following from this on the on the policy. Um, I wonder if, given the the very radically different environment 
we're now operating in since the the onset of the pandemic, given this kind of cattle prod effect we've discussed where people are kind of getting this wake-up call, seeing what the issues are with these disparate supply chains. Have your views changed in any way? Do you see that more or different policy is needed? Or might it even be the case that with the pressure um, existing externally now, with companies kind of being um, having cold water thrown in their face, even without any kind of leveling policy from the government, that less policy is needed. Talk, talk to me about your view on this. Yeah. I, I say policy is needed at first to achieve this leveling of the playing field, so, so that on the average U.S. industry can compete. I, I heard an economist in a, in a debate or a discussion a couple of weeks ago say that 91,000 manufacturing establishments went out of business in the last I can't remember if it was 20 years or 40 years, so, so, but 91,000, you know, huge, huge, huge numbers. And, and mostly, I'm sure, because of offshoring. That, that was his implication, it was because of offshoring. So we've had what I call a deindustrialization policy. So if, if you said, what should we do to, to minimize manufacturing in the U.S.? Well, let's say a really high corporate tax rate, uh, a dollar that's too high, uh, almost no training for skilled workforce. The kids that go to university don't study engineering. We fill up our engineering schools with foreigners who go back and help their countries. Uh, we uh, allow our companies to be very short-term oriented so they don't invest and as well as in the other countries. Now, if, you, if you want to put a list together of the things you do to, to get your manufacturing to go away, We've got duties that on the products coming in are half of what they are on when we ship them to other countries, our allies, you know. So if you're going to design a system to make manufacturing go away, we've been doing that. So I'm saying, I'm not saying go crazy about it, like China probably went crazy about it, but I'm saying at least get back to being typical with other countries in terms of the the incentives and the, uh, the the attractiveness of manufacturing as a career and, and as an industry. I see, I see. And now, final few questions for you. Um, first, regarding the reshoring initiative, of which, of course, you are founder and president, as as I'm sure as I'm sure our listeners know. How, tell me this: How can the reshoring initiative? help our readers and listeners? Okay. Well, it, it, it's easier to say that about manufacturers. And, and I know some of your readers are, and, and some some work in manufacturing, many maintain or repair in manufacturing. And and so we, we provide the TCO estimator, total cost of ownership estimator, free online on our website, and companies can use it to improve their purchasing decisions to, to better understand all those hidden costs. And if they do that, we, from the, the statistics we've analyzed, companies comparing U.S. and China, if they look only at price, U.S. wins 8% of the time. If they look at total cost, U.S. wins 32% of the time. And if there's also a Trump 15% tariff in place, U.S. wins 46% of the time. So by doing the math correctly, huge amounts of work can come back. So we, we offer the, the TCO estimator, and then we have a program called the Import Substitution Program. 
and companies can identify a product or products that they're really good at making and we tell them who the biggest importers are of those products. We train the company to use total cost. They go to the importer and say, hey, I see you're bringing in 50 tons of widgets. We've got these great machines for making widgets. We think our FOB price is going to be within 10% of what you're paying, and we think there's 15 or 20 percentage points of hidden costs. You're going to be 10% better off. Let's get together and make this work out for our two companies and for the state and for the country. And, and so the combination of the TCO estimator and the import substitution program, we believe are a great tool. We're offering uh, that combination through the MEP, Manufacturing Extension Partnerships, in Illinois, Ohio, Maryland, New York, and Rhode Island, and expect to be doing it through other states soon. And then companies can just engage, subscribe with that process. We charge for the import substitution program. The TCO estimator is free. So in, in general, what we do is we help companies to either buy smarter, in other words, find that in some cases they should be buying in the U.S. instead of offshore, and sell smarter, convince their customers to be smarter and buy more here from them and less from offshore. I see. And I think something else, too, that's valuable to say for our, our readers and our listeners in service and repair is that, um, you know, obviously it's a, it's a little harder for, for them to see the direct connection. But what the reshoring initiative really does that helps them is help manufacturing. And obviously a lot of their work prospects in service and repair come from a domestic manufacturing base. So the tools you provide um, to help companies you know, buy smarter and therefore incentivize reshoring also helps, I think, our service and repair audience uh, by um, ensuring that they have prospects to engage in service and repair on. I think maybe that's a, a, a good way to sort of cap it off, too. When we get to balancing the trade deficit, U.S. manufacturing will rise by 40%, 40%, which means there ought to be 40% more repair and maintenance to be done. And so can, can a small repair shop make a big difference? Yeah, maybe not. But when they, when they talk to the bigger company and, and if they hear that the company is thinking of you know, shutting down or importing instead of continuing to bruise, say, hey, have you ever talked to the reshoring initiative? Have you thought? Of, have you tried to do total cost? Uh, the worst they're going to say is, shut up, go away. And in some cases, they may say, hey, that's a great idea. But we'll see if I can get the boss to, to take a look at that. Well, you, you tried. And that's all I do. I, I don't win every fight, but, but, but by... Just, just to put this... Maybe to summarize the impact of the coronavirus... This time, a year ago, we were working with one or two companies to help them reshore. Right now, we're up to 15, and by the end of the year, given the contracts we have with, with these MEPs, we'll be up to 100. Right? So 50, we'll be doing, working on 50 times as many reshoring projects, actually helping companies uh, make this happen as we were a year ago, and that's driven substantially by the COVID crisis and the recognition that this 
this is a unique opportunity. I I, I used this uh, this line in a in a webinar uh, a couple of days ago. Ram uh, uh, Emanuel, the uh, mayor ex mayor of Chicago, uh, Machiavelli, and perhaps Churchill all said, "Never let a serious crisis go to waste." And we have a serious crisis, a tragedy, everything's happening, but it does create the opportunity for manufacturing to be rethought, to industrial policy to be implemented, and millions of jobs to come back to the U.S. Yes, and I, I think Thomas Paine said it as well, if I'm not mistaken, and I, I think that's a, a, a wonderful <laughs> takeaway. And I think it's a good message to hear for people who might be hurting right now um, that there is a kind of light at the end of the tunnel and that, th- that this bad situation can be turned into a good situation. And, Harry, I just want to ask you before we wrap up if there's anything else you'd like to add. Uh, well, yeah, I'm going to give you some links. You'll, links, you'll post them. Uh, but basically, we're at www.reshorenow.org. We're a nonprofit. My mission is to bring 5 million manufacturing jobs back. In, in the 10 years since we started, about 900,000 have come back. And so I've still got a long way to go. And on our website, you can find my email address, phone number, any companies that want to work on reshoring that need some help, that have some opportunities, or have some successes to report, just get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to help you. Okay. Harry, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on our program today. Thank you. It's a pleasure, as always. So once again, that was Harry Moser, founder and president at the Reshoring Initiative, and many of the the tools and offerings he was discussing there at the end of our conversation that that, uh, the Reshoring Initiative provides um, have been provided in the form of links uh, in the the text below this podcast. So the, the total cost of ownership estimator, the, the import substitution program, um, and then also their supply chain gaps uh, tool, which in essence um, can help manufacturers to identify areas where there is a hole to be filled, um, where they, there may be an opportunity available that they don't even know about um, to get in on a domestic market where, where, where um, you know, products are not otherwise being provided cost-effectively. So, so really, I, I think that goes in the vein of the age-old assertion that information is often the most valuable asset. Well, that's a tool that can help uh, manufacturers to attain that information. So, um, you know, I, I know that this is not perfectly aligned with, with our usual service and repair coverage, but I think for the reasons already enumerated, it is relevant, and I think that service and repair should be aware of this stuff. They are, after all, a part of this ecosystem, and like Harry said, I think he makes a good point that they may have more influence than they think if they're involved with the local manufacturers that they service, and they may well be. They may chat with those people. They may have friendly or cordial relations with those people. They may be neighbors. They may go out to lunch with them. I don't know. Um, Often that's the way it is. So, also, you know, I think a positive note um, that resounds here is that despite the, the utter catastrophe and, and decimation we've seen uh, in the wake of COVID, there is kind of a light at the end of this dark tunnel in, in that um, we are, 
we are not wasting a good crisis. I wasn't aware of some of those statistics that Harry cited at the end about just how many companies have decided to move to reshore since COVID, how the numbers have ticked up and accelerated. I know that already in the past several years they had been accelerating, um, but what he's saying and the numbers he's giving, which which I do assume are correct, um, uh, he's a very um, granular sort of guy. He's, he gives a lot of numbers, and I've checked them in the past, and they tend to be correct, so I'm going to assume they're correct. But it seems that um, this this trend is accelerating even more. And that actually sounds a positive note for the future um, once once this pandemic has subsided. Um, so in any case, I hope this show has been enjoyable for everyone. Before we call it a conclusion today, I do just want to review um, what's coming up in the November print issue uh, briefly for those interested readers who will be opening it up and reading. Uh, first and foremost, our senior editor, Kevin Jones, has written a very interesting in-depth cover story on mergers and acquisitions throughout the service industry. Um, And he not only gets into the technical nitty-gritty, helping business owners to understand the difference between private equity, strategic buyers, and investment bankers uh, when it comes to the different arrangements you might have when potentially selling your business. But he also sort of walks readers through a bit of the history of the service industry throughout the generations, you know, as it's passed down from grandparents to parents to children, and sort of looking at why it is that it's in this third generation that we tend to see the most buyouts, not just at service shops, but historically in many industries. So that's a great story. I think it's interesting, it's entertaining, and it has a lot of good practical information uh, for our readers who are um, looking more for something on the business side rather than on the tech side. Um, from our managing editor, Selena Cody, we have stories about companies who are engaged in charitable giving, a little something uplifting there, um, which I'm sure we all need during these times. Um, and, and we also have from her um, an exploration of the growing importance of remote monitoring technology, particularly amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. For reasons I don't think I need to elaborate on and more reasons, remote monitoring, which was already trending upwards, is like many things accelerating under COVID, becoming even more important. Um, uh, and then we also have a safety column. Um, this is written by me exploring the use of industrial robotics to ease the need for reduced human contact in many plants where infection may be a risk. So what we're, we're looking into is the use of various different types of robotic technologies um, to help uh, you know, machine shops uh, and bigger manufacturers to adapt to the fact that they might not be able to have a lot of workers in inside their facility at once, where they need more space between those workers than they used to. So, um, I, I I wouldn't want our business issue to sound too much like our COVID issue, but I guess the reason so much of this is COVID related is because COVID has had such a large effect on business, um, for better or for worse. Um, you know, um, in some cases, uh, certainly for worse in many cases, but in some cases with. Um, certain technology accelerating, as always, um, even in a crisis time, there are some industries that benefit. And, and so there are some interesting dynamics at play here. But in any case, if any of this interests you, my sole recommendation is open your mailbox uh, and open the magazine. I think it's a great issue. So um, anyway, as always, I want to thank all of our readers and listeners for taking the time for being with us today. This is David Miller signing off.